Hi, and welcome to Recovered, a podcast from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization based in Dallas, Texas, and known by many as Maggie's. My name is Stephanie, and I am a recovered alcoholic on staff at the Magdalene House. Each week, I have the pleasure of conducting a live interview with an alcoholic woman in recovery for the participants who are currently in our Next Step program. Whether you're in recovery yourself, contemplating giving it a try, or just supporting someone who is, we are so glad you're here. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our the live version of our podcast series, Recovered Interviews with Alcoholic Women. So today, um, for those of you who aren't aware of what this is, once or twice a week, we do workshops and substitution of our regularly formatted scheduled check-in. One of the workshops that we do is our podcast series where we have a recovered alcoholic woman on um, that we get to just ask questions and talk about different things that we don't normally get to in, in regular meetings. Um, and so today's guest is Bren. And Bren is a very, very, uh, very good friend of mine. She sponsored me around, I think, a, a year sober. And so that's how our relationship built. And now we're just, um, I consider her one of my best friends today. And so that's um, one of the coolest things I think about this program is the relationships that are built. And she has been one who has shown up for me and rough going and my kids are super close with her. And I know that she is one of the things I love about her is how, how honest and uh, transparent she is. And she has a lot of insight and I'm just so grateful to have her here with us today. So if you guys have any questions at all, please feel free to speak up. Even though this is a podcast it is ultimately, it was designed for you all first and it is for you all first. So if you have questions, please speak up. If you do not want your voice being heard, you can send them in the chat and I will ask for you. And then if you don't have questions, that's okay too, because I always have questions. So Brent, if you don't mind, just start with introducing yourself and giving us a little bit of background to qualify yourself as an alcoholic and what led you to Alcoholics Anonymous. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. I feel so like so honored and excited to be here. So yes, my name is Bren. I am an alcoholic. My sobriety date is July 3rd, 2014. I did not know that was going to be my sobriety date. If I did my, the day before my last drink might've looked a little different. I had $20 and I was at Chili's, uh, and, and that was the last time. But, um, what, what catapulted me into sobriety, honestly, was a lot of legal problems. July 3rd, 2014, I went into jail for the 12th time and the last time. So a little bit of how, like, I grew up in uh, Plano, which is a suburb of, of Dallas. And, and I don't know how much of y'all, you know, know about Plano, but in my opinion, it is a... Um, very materialistic town. And so I grew up with this sense of, of always feeling a little left out. You know, I didn't grow up with a lot of money. My family was, was well, but by any means, 
I remember I wanted a Tommy Hilfiger shirt and like Doc Martens in sixth grade, but my parents refused. But I thought if I had those things that I would fit in. But anyways, so, you know, my family looked like your typical family from the outside looking in, but on the inside, it was the complete opposite. You know, I'm the only girl. I have two brothers. So there was a lot of being picked on felt like I needed to keep up with them. You know, my mom, we are best friends now, but as when I was growing up, you know, she suffered from, you know, depression. So she was very absent. Um, and my dad was a very mean man. And, uh, when he wasn't at home being mean, he was gone half the time. So, you know, fast forward, I already felt like I needed to gain my, my dad and my brother's um, and my mom's attention and approval. So I tried to do everything I could. I sucked at school, so I knew it wasn't going to come from being a good student. So I tried really hard at sports and dance, and that's kind of where I thrived. So I spent, you know, looking back, I spent the majority of my time, um, dancing and, um, trying to fit in at school. I tried anything and everything to be a part of because I always felt not a part of, and that's all I wanted. I just so desperately wanted to be a part of. And, you know, I didn't pick up a drink or a drug until I was 18. I had finished high school. I was a officer on drill team. Um, so I no longer had that structure in my life. Um, and I had an incident happen where, um, I literally lost all my friends because of high school rumors. You know, I thought I had finally arrived and then something happened and I was no longer relevant and I was depressed and I was angry and I was lonely and I picked up alcohol. And it, I didn't have that experience where I, I picked up alcohol and was like, oh my God, I love it. Right. It took me a while. Um, you know, like good old fashioned alcoholic, a lot of practice, um, of getting really, really drunk and that escalated. I made my first geographical change in 2008 to Austin thinking that if I moved out there, that things would be better, that I could start over. And really what that did was just catapult my drinking even more. And so I got my first DWI in 2008 and, um, Two, two weeks later, um, I got my second DWI. So I got my first two DWIs within the same month. And um, I, let's see, I kept on doing what I was doing. It didn't even phase me. I was like, well, okay, I just need to be, I just need to be a little bit more careful when I'm out in public. Maybe I shouldn't drive. You know, in 2010, I realized that doing probation was very difficult. So I moved back home to Dallas and ended up turning myself in 
to jail. And I did about five months in Austin jail for the sole purpose so that I could go back to doing what I wanted to do. Um, because I could not, I, I didn't want to stop drinking. And then the second that I got out of five months in jail, y'all, I am not even kidding. Within two weeks, I got um, a public intox. And then I think it was like a month after that, I got my third DWI. And y'all, I still, I did not think that it was a problem. I was like, I just have really bad luck getting caught. The thought of being an alcoholic never slipped into my mind. This whole time I was working as a bartender or a waitress. And sometimes that's just the lifestyle that can come with that job. So I just didn't think anything of it. I just thought that I had really bad luck at getting caught. And so after that third DWI, I was on felony probation. And that's where things started getting re like it, it ventured out of that me going out and having fun and drinking and just like, oh, it's, it's a part of, of what you do in your 20s. It ventured from that into um, I was drinking all the time. I was drinking alone. I was spending every single cent I had on alcohol. I had a breathalyzer in my car. I had a breathalyzer at home. I could not blow a single breath into that thing. And I couldn't, I kept failing UA tests at probation and my probation officer kept sending me to jail over the weekends, which is where I racked up that 12 times in jail. And finally my probation officer was like, listen, if you, if, if this happens again, like we will revoke your probation and you will go to prison. Um, and that terrified me. Actually, that didn't even terrify me. What terrified me was she was like, but first we'll give you an ankle monitor. And I was like, oh, no, I definitely can't get away with drinking with an ankle monitor. The ankle monitor scared me more than prison. So really what catapulted that was, I mean, I just started to feel this, this pit in me that I can't explain other than I just lived to drink. Um, I thought that's all that I, I was good at. So, um, really what catapulted me into, into trying to get sober was the fact that I knew I wouldn't be able to survive without, with that ankle monitor on. So I was like, well, maybe if I go to treatment, that'll get them the, the government off my back and maybe they won't give me an ankle monitor. Um, so I went to treatment and like, talk about a God moment though, right? Because my own idea, right? Which it talks about in the book, like my best ideas get me drunk. It obviously got me to jail 12 times, um, racked up three DWIs and a whole other rap sheet and and here it is that I'm thinking that it's my idea to go to treatment, right? To get them off my back. But little did I know that God was already working in my life. And um, I'm so thankful that that happened because something happened in treatment. And after 11 years of drinking and um, going to jail, 
switching jobs, losing friends, like something finally shifted in me and it all clicked. And I, and I was able to accept the fact finally after 11 years and three DWIs guys, (laughs) like it took me that long to finally accept the fact that I was an alcoholic. And so, you know, that's what landed me here in recovery. And I'm super, super grateful because Lord knows I would either be in prison or underground by now. And so super thankful. Awesome. Thank you so much, Bryn. So glad that you're here. So, and you talked about, uh, in your, in your childhood, um, like always wanting to be, always wanting to fit in. And I know like we talk about sometimes like, like comparing ourselves to others. I would just love for you to uh, talk on the, to speak on the topic of the comparison game and how that takes your eyes off of God. Mm. Yes. I love this topic because I think I lived my whole entire life focused on the comparison game, looking at what I thought I didn't have and what others did have, or what I think I should be, what I think I should look like, what I think I should have. And these other people have it and I don't, what's wrong with me. And the comparison is basically, I'm telling God he's not doing it right. You know, and for me, it's taken a lot. I still I still fall short in that area. I mean, I'm human, right? I'm going to have those moments where I, I fall into that mindset of comparison. However, um, I've done a lot of work around that because, you know, I knew, I knew coming, I remember my mom driving me to treatment and I remember looking at her and I was still like, you know, mom, maybe I'm not. And this was before I knew anything about Alcoholics Anonymous, but I was like, maybe I'm not an alcoholic. Maybe I'm just like extremely selfish and so worried about everyone else. And that's why I drink. And like, little did I know anything about the program and that like my real problem is selfishness and self-centeredness. Right. So you know, the comparison game, it really, for me, what it's like is I'm comparing my behind the scenes to someone else's highlight reel, right? And I think especially nowadays with social media, it's even easier to fall into that comparison game, right? Of, Of those, seeing those good moments that people post and being like, well, why doesn't my life look like that? Why do they get that? And I don't how do they look like that? And I don't like, I need to be skinnier. I need to have more money. I need to have a better job. And really for me, what that comes down to is, is the book talks about no, like no human aid. Right. And if I'm constantly putting my contentness and my happiness and, and others, then I'm always pretty much going to stay miserable. Right. Like if I'm constantly going to look at what I don't have, I lack gratitude and without gratitude, I mean, of course I'm going to stay miserable. Right. 
So, I mean, I, I fall short in the comparing game for sure. I think every human struggles with it, whether they want to admit it or not. But what really is helpful for me is knowing that I've done a lot of work and, and, finding that relationship with God, right? The whole basis of this program is to be God reliant. And and I didn't know how to do that. And one of the reasons comparing ate me up so much was because I was looking for validation through others. And I was looking validation through the amount of things I had or the job title I had or what others thought of me. And that's how I was getting um, my worth fed, right? And if I'm constantly doing that, I'm never going to be happy, even when I get those things. And so it takes a lot of practice, a lot of fourth steps, a lot of 10th steps, a lot of sitting with things and a lot of, of practice going to God, you know, an untangible source to really be able to find and feel that validation and worth and who I am through God. Awesome. Thank you. That, that actually, I kind of, I didn't even know I was going to talk to you about this topic, but whenever you were talking, I thought, yes. So, um, can you, can you talk about what God reliance looks like versus self-reliance. Yeah, I think for me, self, it's hard because I feel like I, sometimes I don't even know I'm in self-reliance until it's like smack dab in my face that I'm like, oh gosh, (laughs) I've definitely been self-willing this area of my life, but typically it's like when I keep hitting roadblocks, like if I have a plan or design in my mind, an expectation, right. Of what I think should happen. And I just keep running into roadblocks. Like it's not naturally unfolding. It's not naturally happening. And then that's typically a sign that I'm living in self-reliance that I'm living in self-will and I need to start moving towards, towards God reliance. And, and I think a big, uh, like something that I say quite a lot is like, it is what it is. Right. And that's kind of where I feel like that God reliance is not, um, it's a lot of to do with acceptance and it talks about it on the page, on page 417, I believe of the big book, like acceptance is the answer to all my problems. Right. And I, and I find that when I get into that position of acceptance, it's easier for me to become God reliant. Right. Whereas I can take whatever is thrown my way and not, I can take it, but that I know I take comfort in the fact, knowing that whatever does come my way, that like God has got me. Right. I, all I can do when it comes to that is look inward and look upward because those are the only things that I, I I'm, I'm able to do to find that peace and comfort. Um, so God reliance just really looks like, it looks like perspective change to me, a lot of prayer, a lot of conversations with God. I mean, I'm talking to him all day long. 
Um, I take the phone off the hook in the morning and I don't hang it up till the end of the night. I don't know. And that's what God reliance looks like for me. I know one of the things that uh, when I think about you, that stand, that stands out to me was that, I mean, you have a, you're in a relationship today, but you were single for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were very adamant about taking that time to build your relationship with, with God and really sticking to your sane and sound. Uh, so can you talk about the importance of a sane and sound first? Yeah. And then, um, yeah, just start with that first. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I was single, I think for about, I mean, pre-sobriety. And then I was single for the first four years of my sobriety. So about eight years total. I knew coming in to recovery that I was a big approval and attention junkie. And so that was a defect that God quickly removed for me. You know, it says sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. That was one he plucked right from me pretty quickly. Like the desire wasn't there because I knew I knew that if I got involved and I felt any kind of rejection or misunderstanding, that that would be a blank spot for me, that I would have a really hard time staying sober. So, you know, when I got into the sane and sound, right, which I do right after my fourth step, I'm seeing how I have shown up in past relationships, right? Not just intimate relationships, but friendships, family, so on and so forth. And I'm seeing how I have shown up in my life without God, right? Um, And it is the answer. It's the key, right? That that is how I'm going to continue to show up in relationships without God. So developing that sane and sound was super important to me. I, I was really excited to have this gauge of what to work towards. And, and what I wanted for my life, you know? So I think sometimes in, in the beginning, you know, we can get into, oh, a saying and sound is writing what I want my perfect relationship or what I want my perfect, you know, partner to look like. And, and yes, it is to write what we want that relationship to possess, what we want our partner characteristics that we would like them to possess. Um, But I think the most important thing is, do I possess those? Right. And, and using that, because anytime I would get to a point of like, oh, I want to, I want to date or, oh, I have a crush on this person and so on and so forth. I could look at my sane and sound and be like, do I even match up to this? Like, would I even be bringing anything to the table? And if there was something on there that I lacked, that I still struggled in, whether it be financial independence or compassion or God-centered, whatever that looked like, if I still struggled in that area, I knew that I had no business going out searching for someone else who possessed those things. And so I just really use that sane and sound as not like a to-do list, but just like a gauge of 
where am I at in my recovery? Where am I at in my growth? And if I hadn't, if I was still struggling in those areas, I knew that I, 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 I still needed to spend some time with God and myself. And so the saying and sounded, I still have one today um, because we're never done growing. But in the beginning, I just knew relationships would be a tough area for me. So I really held tight to that saying and sound. And um, yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Now I, I got some insight onto what your saying and sound looks like too, because you just named a few examples. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Does anybody have a question? I do. Okay, Jessica. Um, what would you say as far as the saying and sound goes? Like, what would you say to someone that is getting sober, but has been in a relationship and is still in that relationship? Like, I guess marriage, basically. Like, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, again, the saying and sound. So marriage is, is a little different than, you know, someone who is single and looking for, um, a potential relationship to turn into marriage, you know, marriage, you've, you have shared a lot together. You have exchanged those vows. Um, so there is a different, a little bit of a different foundation there. However, I still think a sane and sound is great for your own personal growth of looking at like, what are things that I want to possess and bring to this relationship, you know, and work towards those. And also, you know, hopefully, hopefully, you know, being with a partner who supports you, that this is something that you can share with them. Like, Hey, this is something that I, I would like, you know, the foundation of our relationship to be like, what are things we could do to work towards this, you know, and really kind of like, sharing that sane and sound experience with your partner because that's ultimately what it is a partnership and like how can we get our relationship to this place thank you Brent. great question yeah do you do that in your relationship today I do yeah I do it's it's something um one thing that I've learned it's so weird because I was horrible at relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it was again, friendships, intimate, whatever, horrible. And, um, like the relationship that I'm in now, um, we're both in recovery. So I think, you know, God is the center of it, but communication is key. Like I mean, I'm a little easier at communicating because I just word vomit, whatever. I have no problem word, word vomiting feelings and emotions and so on and so forth. But, you know, I have found that honestly, one of the most beneficial things in a healthy relationship is communication. Go ahead, Cynthia. Have, okay. This is the, I'm not articulate. Have you had experience of having to implement a sound and same when you're already in a relationship? Like you have, you have all these things in common and, you know, you know what you want. And I found that I've been a little more one-sided than the other. And 
I guess in lack of a better phrase, lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. So are you supposed to sit on its head and drown it and force it to drink? I mean, (laughs) you know, I, I haven't had experience when it comes to and like intimate relationships with the sand and sound. I mean, I have with friendships and in that position. Um, I mean, not, I'm, I'm no longer friends with them. I may be acquaintances with them, but I'm no longer friends. And like, I am not one, you know, that is something for you and God to decide. Like that's where we have to bring God into every area of our life, including relationships. And that's another thing, you know, what God reliance looks like is listening to the things we don't want to listen to. You know, sometimes God might be telling us something. We're like, no, that's not what I want to happen. I don't want it to look that way. So I'm just going to keep on doing what I think, what I think is best. But I definitely think that that's something to bring God into and to have plenty of conversations with and see where he's leading. Because I mean, if you're willing to grow towards something and, and the other party isn't, I think there's questions to ask yourself of like, well, what would God have me be? What would God have me do? And what do I believe that God wants for me? Like, is this, is this, am I adding to it? Or is this relationship adding to my life? Or is it taking? Cynthia, did you have another question? I I did because, um, thank you. I was under the thought until this very moment that sane and sound was only for your intimate personal relationships. I've never applied a sane and sound to friendships. I've never looked at it from that perspective. Thank you. Thank you. That that clears up a lot because usually it's sane and sound sex idea because it comes, you know, on, you know, the sex part of the inventory, but to apply that in friendships, I can see where that would be amazingly beneficial. Thank you. Yeah. No, of course. It's super beneficial. I mean, you, it's like, you are what you attract. I want to spend, I want to surround myself with people who, who are very like-minded, you know, God centered, looking for growth, you know, vulnerable, honest, transparent, like those are all things that I value. And, um, it's hard to relate to anything less than that. So yeah, I mean, my, my, sex inventory. My parents were on my sex inventory. My, my ex-best friends were on my sex inventory, you know? So I, yeah, I take that into every, every kind of relationship in my life. Thank you, Cynthia. Thank you, Brian. All right. Anyone else? Hey, I got a question. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so you're talking about saying and sound, um, and friendships as well. Um, I've got a friendship with a friend. Well, we've been best friends since like we were 13 over the last few years. We've kind of probably the last 15 years we've drifted apart, but she just doesn't respect boundaries that I set. So I've totally stopped talking to her, but is there another way I can resolve that? Or should I just leave it like that? I hate mm-hmm. to do that, Yeah. but, um, she's toxic for me, I guess is what a friend of mine said. So you know, and it hurts my heart, but mm-hmm. when I'm trying to do the right thing and she doesn't respect that, you know, I don't it know what to do. Yeah. Huh? I, 
I, I, I, I totally empathize with that situation. It's hard. It's hard when it comes to people and friends, like, you know, doing the next right thing. It's like, what is doing the next right thing? Would it, would it be letting sleeping dogs lie or would it be to continue trying to repair this relationship? And I don't know, in my experience with that, I've had to look at it as like when I, when I was a very toxic person in a friendship, right? What is the best thing that my friend, my friends then could do for me was kind of drop me as a friend, because that's when I really learned the consequences to my behaviors and my actions, right? That taking people emotionally hostage is not okay. And I only learned that through losing a lot of friendships. And, you know, I've lost a lot of friends in sobriety too. And and it is, there's a grieving process, you know, like you are grieving a part of you, a part of your life. And what I've really taken comfort in is that, you know, I feel that like God removes people that he doesn't remove people from your life because they're not good enough or because you're not good enough. But I think that I'm a big fan of, of the term seasons, right? Because seasons, they don't last forever. They're, they're here temporarily and then they're gone. They may come back. They may look a little different. I mean, every season comes back. It may just look a little different. So I feel like there's people placed in our life for certain seasons of our life. And when we're no longer of service to them, or if they are no longer of service to us, then maybe God sees fit to remove it. And, and again, I think a lot of what do I do next comes from a lot of prayer and meditation with God. But if something is toxic to you, I, I don't think that you're wrong in stepping back. Thank you, Bren. You were talking uh, about like the seasons and I know that you sponsored me for that season of my life for a reason. And then now God sees fit for us to be in each other's lives as friends. And I'm so, Mm -hmm. so grateful for that. And, and hopefully you can be a lifetime, you know, he's in lifetime, but I was, I know one of the things that I took away with whenever you sponsored me that I may not have appreciated at the time because of my own delusion, but, uh, was the importance of, of 10 stepping. Mm -hmm. And so, and I know that's one of your favorite topics. So can you speak on the importance of, of 10 stepping and and the um, topic of, of self-awareness? Yeah. Ah, I love the 10 step. I love it. I love self-awareness. And I think that's because I was so non-self-aware for so long. Like I lived in that ignorance is bliss area for a very long time. Like, you know, just very disconnected from myself. I've always been a big feeler, um, but I was never able to process those feelings. So, and that's what the 10th step has given me. It has given me the ability to sort through the mess in my head and really be able to process those feelings, right? Because ultimately 
coming in, of course, coming in here, it's like, oh, if I can just stop drinking, then like my life will get better. And then only come to find out that like selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of everything. And those feelings that I, that I struggle with, right. The feelings of whether they're negative or positive, just feelings in general, that is what drove me to drink. Right. I drove when I was in fear or I drove, I drank when I was in fear. I drank when fear was driving me, but I drank when I was in fear. I drank when I was angry. I drank when I was sad. I drank when I was happy when there was something to celebrate. Those were all the reasons I drank. And so really being able to take a look at those and figure out what is underneath them was going to be so important for me and my sobriety and being able to, you know, I didn't know who I was also. And, and I think it, the tent step really kind of gave me that opportunity to get to know myself again. Right. And so, and then I also think I'm, you know, I'm a very empathetic person. Like I can put myself in someone else's shoes and, and, and sometimes I think I may lack boundaries. I know that I'm definitely, um, super codependent and there is an Al-Anon program in my future, but I, I, I had to think of how my, I couldn't live, I couldn't live in the dark anymore. Right. I, I couldn't live without seeing how my actions and behaviors affect other people. Also, because as an alcoholic, I just wrote a huge resentment inventory on how the actions and behaviors, yes, I played a part in it, but how actions and behaviors of other people affect me, right? And how I feel um, if I run across someone who is acting, we're all selfish and self-centered, but if that makes sense at all, um, I, I was really able to see how my words or my lack of words could be um, affecting someone else negatively. And also self, you know, oh man, the self-seeking part of me, right? Like the pride, the selfishness, the self-seeking, the fear, it's all... Oh, I get so passionate because it's all connected. It's all like, it's just all full circle. Right. And, and it just takes my eyes off God. I lack humility, right? I'm prideful in the fact that I want others to see me a certain way or that they should see me another way, which I feel is basically like me saying, give me all the glory, give me all the glory, give me all the recognition versus saying, give God the glory. Like God is doing for me what I cannot do for myself. And, and I fall, I, it's just really important for me to look at what is driving me. You know, it says in the book, big book, being driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Right. And so I have to look at what is driving me right? It's, it's the fear. Okay. Fear of not being liked. 
Okay. And then I, I, I kind of sometimes take it a step further and I'm like, well, okay, well, what happens if I'm not liked? Right. And again, it goes back to what we were talking about in the very beginning with the comparison game. If I'm always going to look for my validation and other people, um, I'm always going to be filled with fear of not being liked. And, and that's going to cut me off from God. And that is going to take me away from being of service to other people. It's going to take me away from being present in my relationships because knowing me, I'm going to sit there and overthink myself to death on why this person doesn't like me and what I can do to get them to like me. And if I'm constantly finding my, my worth and validation and, and those people, uh, it's going to be a miserable life. Right. So I've got to look to God to find that validation. Um, so really looking at what is driving those feelings for me has been super like life-changing really be able to get to know like the inner workings of my mind. Now, granted self-knowledge will not fix it. Again, as the book says, like self-knowledge will fix it. No, I've tried that. It does not. It makes things worse. And then you're having to do a whole nother four step. So, you know, really being watchful of, of what those driving forces are behind the fear, the pride, the, um, the selfishness. I mean, has been super important for me. And I think it's such a blessing. I really do because not everybody gets to know themselves that way, right? Not everybody gets to really have that kind of relationship with others where they're able to focus on themselves and get to know their feelings and their emotions and, and so on and so forth. And so I've, I love the 10th step because it has, not only has it changed me um, for the better, I continue to grow in the 10th step, um, but it has uh, increased like the, the meaning of my relationships, like the importance of my relationships. It has an increased um, how I show up. It's increased what I give. It's increased what I get back from a relationship. Um, the 10 step has just overall like changed my life. And yes, sometimes I fall short, um, in the 10 step area, because I, I don't like Stephanie was saying earlier, sometimes we just, sometimes we just don't want to hear it. I can hear what God, and I'm just like, no, that's not really what I'm, I'm wanting right now. So, um, but I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge fan of like metaphors and, and sayings. And, and I, I don't think. A mistake is only a mistake if we don't learn from it, right? Other than that, it's just, it's just an experience. It's just a life lesson. And I think that that's what growth is built on experiences and life lessons. So sometimes I'm going to fall short in a 10th step and, and that's okay. I think looking at what I learn from that and what I take from that and move forward is a pretty cool experience to have. Awesome. Thank you. Anybody else? Okay, well, I'd like to ask one more question before we ask the wrap-up questions. So if we go over just a few minutes past 10, if some of y'all have to get off, it's totally fine. But I would just love for you to speak on real real quick the topic, which also falls into step 10, of uh, love and tolerance of others is our code. Mm -hmm. Yes, love and tolerance, man. I 
I was like, I tolerate a lot of people, you know, and it was brought to my intention. Okay. Well, that's not really what tolerance means. Tolerance doesn't mean like, you know, I'm just going to tolerate that person. Like move on. I'm just going to tolerate them, do what I can, you know, love and tolerance is about respect. Right. And, and I think oh, the world that we are in right now, when it comes to, I thought like different opinions, right. An opinion is just that like an opinion, everyone opinions. What is it? I don't know if I, opinions are like booty holes. Everyone has one. And I think with love, you know, and, and that's hard at this day and age because everyone has an opinion about everything and, and um, really love and tolerance that's when a huge practice of love and tolerance comes in for me of that, like, okay, well, everybody is entitled to their own opinion. My feelings are not facts. Other people's feelings are not facts. Opinions are opinions. We're all free to that. I really have to look into a, when I have big emotions or when I act out selfishly or when my defects crop up, which is a lot and that's the key word, when my defects crop up, the way I act out my defects look completely different than um, how someone else is going to act out in their defects, right? And what would I want to be shown when I'm struggling or, you know, acting out? I'd want love and tolerance, you know, for someone to, to give, extend me that grace, um, to not judge me on it, to not cast me out. And so that's kind of how I look at love and tolerance. Like, how would I want to be treated in an area where I struggle? And then I kind of take that into like, okay, well, that's love and tolerance right there. Like, we are human. Like, I hate that term sick, like sick man's prayer should just be called human prayer. Um, because like, we are all human. Like we are all going to have areas of our life that look different and someone else may not understand. We're all going to make mistakes. We're all going to like act out and do everything. Like we're going to do something wrong. And it's like, how would I want to be treated? Okay. Well, that's how I'm going to treat others, how I would want to be treated. And that's what love and tolerance looks like for me, that we are all like in the same boat. It may look like a different boat. Someone might look like a yacht. Mine might look like a little paddle boat, but we're all in the same boat going towards the same thing. And so it's like, okay, love and tolerance. How would I want to be treated? That's how I'm going to treat it. That's how, what I'm going to strive to, to treat others. I'm going to love and I'm going to respect the fact that we are all in the same, that we are struggling from the same thing. We are after the same solution. We are all children of God. I look at finding the, the, the common denominators rather than looking at the differences. Because if I focus on the differences, I'm going to get ungrateful real quick. So as long as I focus on, on what, you know, we have in common, I'm able to come from that, you know, area of, of em- empathy a little bit more. And for me, empathy is where my love and tolerance really shines. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Does anybody have a question before I ask the wrap up question? Okay. Well, my wrap up question, Bren, and just thank you so much for being here with us. I hope everyone enjoys you as much as I do. 
would be if you could leave us with one takeaway, uh, if you don't hear anything I say today, hear this, what would that takeaway be? That's tough because I have so many takeaways. There's like so much I would want to say. I think, I think for me, I think something that like I would have liked to hear and that I just, I think the message that I want to continually send to women is that you are enough. And, you know, the, the most important relationship in your life is, is the one with God and the one with yourself. Those are the relationships that are going to stay in your, that are, that will stay in your life forever. And so really digging deep into getting to know God and getting to know yourself, I think are the most important things. And I think it's the biggest blessing that the recovery has given me. Awesome. Thank you. Absolutely. All right. Well, everyone have such a good day. This was great, Brent. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, ladies. I hope you'll have such a great, what's today? Thursday. Okay. Well, have a great weekend. All right. Bye. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. 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 This podcast is from the Magdalene House, a recovery community for alcoholic women. We are a nonprofit organization located in Dallas, Texas, and we provide comprehensive recovery services to alcoholic women at absolutely no cost. You can learn more and support our mission at magdalenehouse.org.